God can dwell with us and we can be his people and he can be our God. And, uh, and home renovation projects aren't necessarily easy, right? Um, when, when, when my wife and I were first married, we lived in a kind of a duplex condominium style uh, house. It was a duplex. We had one half of the house. And, uh, and so we were trying to improve the house, to improve the function of the house. And it had old linoleum in the kitchen and the dining room areas. We're not talking a lot of space here. We're probably talking like, you know, maybe, I don't know, 50 square feet. It wasn't a lot of space. And we thought, you know, we can do this. They were just coming out with those luxury vinyl, you know, tile panel type stuff, you know. And we're like, hey, you know, you can put it down. It's easy. It'll go well. It'll be great. Um, it didn't go so great. You know, so I started off and I'm putting things in place. And she's like, but what about this? What about that? I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out later. She's like, no, you got to figure it out to start. Right at the beginning, you know argument, right? Like, how's this supposed to go? And then, of course, I'm like cutting things, and she's like, okay, this isn't working. I'm like, well, I cut it right. What's wrong with you? You know, that didn't go well either. And eventually, we learned that she's really good at fine, cutting things finely and, and making sure things fit together. You know, those things where you have to snap them in place, and I'd get them snapped in place, and then they'd come apart, and I'd be like, I don't understand, and she'd do it, and they'd work. So eventually, uh, it, was, it was somewhat of a joke, somewhat of a joke, but we, we said that we survived our first divorce through a home renovation project, you know, it was, it was a joke, but not totally, you know how that goes. Um, and, uh, and in the process, uh, we learned a lot of things, and so it, as we've moved along in our home renovations projects, we, we still still have to figure out a few things as we go along, but basically it come down, come, comes down to she does the work and I just help her. You know, that's the way it goes. Um, but, uh, but overall, the, the home renovation projects can, can be challenging. Why? Because you've got to clear out the mess and you've got to put in something new. And in the process, what you're, you, you're doing is you're seeking to make something better of the space that was there. And that's what we got as we looked last week at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, where it talks about the church being the, the, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. You get, we got the sense that Christ is, is filling us and he's filling the church, but that also means that he's emptying us of certain things too. And the, that emptying process can be hard. And frankly, the filling process can be hard because you're like, how, how is this supposed to work? I, I knew how the old way worked and I knew how the old flooring worked, but this new flooring and how is this supposed to work and what are you supposed to do? How is that supposed to work? And so there's these, this process that God is taking us through as, as his people and we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 that God is removing things in order to put something new in. And this is God at work. So when, we're, when we read through here, in some senses, we're not saying, okay, we, we need to do anything. Okay, This is what God is doing in us. But at the same time, once you recognize what God is doing, then you're able to, in a sense, cooperate, to move with, to flow with 
God and not be fighting the flow, so to speak. And so, um, so let's just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and then we'll look into the text and see how God is both, and as we read, I would just encourage you to notice, how is, what is God removing? Pay attention to that. And then what is God filling in its place? Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. To you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him he, we both have access in one spirit through the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as we read through there, the first thing you should notice is that we are, in that sense, where he's removing the hostility from this, this space that he's making his people, right? So notice the hostility that's there. If you will, again, he, he says, verse 11, Therefore, re remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So he's, he, he's in, in very uh, subdued language. He's saying, you guys didn't get along. <laughs> you were at odds with each other. You were hostile to each other. Not only were that, but you despised one another. For the Jews to call the uncircumcision, the, the Gentiles uncircumcision, which basically say, you're nobody, you have nothing, and to, to throw it in their faces, you know. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a predominant Latin, uh, Latino community, right? But you get the term gringo thrown at you sometimes, right? Hey, you gringo, you know, like you're different from us, you know. I don't know if you've, as Gentiles, maybe you've seen a Jew with the, the hat on, and maybe if they're, 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 they've got the, the things going down the sides, I don't know what they're called. And your temptation is to look at that and say, that's weird, right? That's weird. We, don't, we think, why would somebody do that? Why would they dress that way? Why would they be that different from everyone else? And there's this hostility that's happening between the two groups. Now, that's, this is religious hostility, but in some senses, God is showing us that religious hostility is like the, the epitome of hostility here, but there's other forms of hostility, and they're all different 
parts of what you might call the pyramid game, right? The pyramid game is that idea of who can get to the top the first. I don't know about you, but I've played uh, King of the Mountain, right? We used to, I used to do it with my brothers, uh, and uh, I wouldn't play it with, it with them now because I wouldn't win. Um, but, but when I was, uh, when I w- we were younger, I was the biggest, I was the strongest, and you, you played King of the Mountain, why? To prove that you were, right? And in the world, there's all these status games that we play. Who's the smartest? Who has the most, who has the biggest salary? Who, who, who has uh, the most kids? Or the fewest kids, depending on how you want to play that game. Um, who, who has, who has the, the most toys? Who has the greatest vacations? Who, who's part of the, the best group? We play status games all the time. And they're all designed to, to one-up one another, to say, I'm better than you in some fashion, Right? They're all versions, if you will, if the Bible would describe them as versions of self-righteousness. We're trying to prove that we have something that you don't. And here he lists off what the Jews would say about the Gentiles and what they didn't have. Here's what we have that you don't. He said, we have the Messiah. (laughs) You don't have the Messiah. You're not part of the nation of Israel. You don't have all the blessings of being part of Israel. You're, you don't have the covenants, the promises of God. You have none of those things. You're, therefore, you're without hope and you're without God in the world. All of those things were true. But God hadn't put those things in place to, to shame the Gentiles, but to call them to himself. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations, they were an example of pride and arrogance, like we have something that you don't. And that's what Satan does, is he twists the good things God gives us, and he encourages us to make them statuses that make us look good, to make us great, to make us great in the eyes of ourselves and others. It's a pride game. It's a status game. And Satan encourages status games. That's, that's one of his major plays. He's always about inserting into the goodness of God different status games that we can play. Like, you know, who's the best? Who's the most holy? Who's the most righteous? And you say, well, in so, in so doing, what he does is he divides and conquers. I'll just divide here. And then eat up both sides. And because we're focused on our righteousness and the other group's unrighteousness, he's got us both. You say, well, aren't there two sides? You know, you have, even with Scripture, you have believers and unbelievers. It's true. It's not about there aren't there are two sides or there aren't two sides. It's the fact of what does the side represent? What is the side about? If you believe in the gospel, the gospel comes to us and says, you have no status. You don't deserve God's grace. You haven't earned God's grace. It's given to you as a gift. 
So believers come to God not on the basis of our status or our accomplishments or our self-righteousness, but on the basis of what God has done for us. And so the devil is the one who's always creating these two sides and pitting them against each other. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is worse. You think that's going on today? <laughs> Just watch the news, right? Which is worse? There's so many different pairs out there. You see why, of course. He ri- relies on your extra dislike of one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. If you're focused on error too much, you don't see truth. But this is what the devil does, is he puts these out here, says, pick a side. Your side is the best side. If he's trying to convince you your side is the best side, and that side's so terrible, then gradually you fall into the error of self-righteousness and other errors as well. This is always happening, okay? Satan doesn't quit at trying to do this. You, you think of, of high school. You go into high school, and you immediately, you seem like there's always cliques forming. <laughs> like, who are the guys in sports? Who are the, who are the people who are in art? Who are the people who are in band? Who are the, and, 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 of course, whatever you're involved in is the best thing to be involved in, and whatever someone else involved in that's not part of your group is one of the, they're, they're just arrogant jerks, you know, right? In church, it's legalism. We, we get focused on, well, what does God say about this? And we need to obey this law, and we need to do this. And the people who don't do that, well, they're arrogant jerks. They're not humble people like we are. And it's not to say that there isn't truth. We have truth. But the law, as Paul points it out in 1 Timothy, is not given to show us how great we are, but what sinners we are, how much we fail, how much we don't live up to the standard. And if you use the law to say, look how great I am, you're using it opposite of what God has intended the law to be for. And this is what he says here, that God removes, right? Notice what he says again. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance. He's saying God is getting rid of this, this, the defining thing is whether you're keeping the law or not. That's what defines it here. He's saying, nope, that's going off the table. Why? In order that he might create in himself, that is in Christ, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility See, he's removing this, this, this barrier between us. that we, don't, we liked the barrier. We thought it was great. We thought it was awesome. It proves that I'm right and they're wrong. And he's like, no. <laughs> the one who is righteous is God. <laughs> he sent his son to die for us, and Christ went to the cross. And when you stand at the cross, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. 
We all have to humble ourselves. We're all sinners. Before a loving, merciful, gracious God who's angry with our sin. And so God is, in that sense, He's looking at humanity and he's looking at all the status games we play. And this nation's like, we're better. And this nation's like, we're great over here. We, we have this culture. We've lasted this long as a nation. We're awesome. And he's like, no. I'm going to wipe that out. I'm going to create a new space. And I'm able to do that because of the cross. I'm going to wipe out these status games that people play. And I'm going to fill it now with peace. I'm going to fill it with things that make peace, which brings us to point number two, filling with peace. This is what God is doing. Notice what he says, verse 14, again, for he himself is our peace. Notice verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Now, peace is is a concept, again, a Jewish concept that's not, we usually think of peace as a lack of something a lot of times. It's a lack of war, a lack of hostility, and that's partially true. But peace in a Jewish conception is, is filled with many good things. It's filled with that sense of satisfaction, that sense of, of, of things fitting together, things working together. And so he's saying, he's filling us, he's preaching peace. He's saying, hey, not only do you lack, you, you can lack hostility, but you can actually have peace. You can be filled with good things. You can enjoy one another where you couldn't before. Verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again here, when he's talking about filling, he's, sometimes you're like, well, if he's filling the church with peace... How come I don't feel it? It doesn't feel peaceful all the time. It feels like there's a lot of vision sometimes. It feels like there's problems. Well, again, we're not, when we talk about filling with peace, we're not talking about like filling up a cup with water. Like, oh, look, there's, it's all water. <laughs> what, we're, what we're talking about filling with peace is more like filling up a garden. We put things in place that, that produce fullness, that produce joy, that produce things, things. And so when he says that God is filling us with peace, what he's saying is that God is putting things into our lives, calling us certain things, making us to be certain people that produce peace as a result. It's the, the fullness of peace. It's going to be overflowing of peace. It's taking it from being a stagnant cup full of water to being a spring that's gushing forth with water. That's the difference here. So, so as we read through the passage, you should be looking for how does, what, what structures does God put in place that, that, that overflow with peace, that make peace like really just flood out and, 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 sh and flow out to us and to others. So he says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, he's talking, obviously, he's talking about through prayer. We can go to the Father. We can ask the Father with praying things. And even whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you both have access. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But I want to focus on the next phrase there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. 
The word here for fellow citizen is the word for you're in the same political unit. Now, they understood this term in that sense because there were different political units that you could be a part of. You know, you had the the idea of city-states. You have Athens or Corinth. And they had their own ideas about what they they wanted together and what rules they were going to follow and how they were going to run their society these political units, they, 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 they had their same rules. They had the same authority. They were playing, in a sense, the same game. They also had the same enemy. We have a lot of different enemies out there at times, right? And we're trained to notice them. I was thinking of a time my, my sisters moved back um, from from South Dakota to Ames, and so we were at a parade recently, and, uh, and one of the kids was just not really paying attention, and the parade hadn't started yet, but he's not paying attention, he just kind of danced out into the road a little bit, not paying attention, and my sister and I, at the same time, basically in the same breath, was like, hey, come back, you know what I mean? Why? Because we've, in a sense, been trained to notice physical danger and the, 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 the possibilities of it. And we immediately jumped on it. We were, we were both on the, the same wavelength at the same time. Why? Because we, we'd been trained to notice the same enemy. But not all enemies are enemies. You understand this, right? And not all enemies are common enemies. Think about it for a second. If, if the church thinks oh, this is an enemy, or that's an enemy, and it doesn't understand who their common enemy is, then you don't have peace. If you can't agree on what the enemy is, then you're not going to have peace. Then yet God is, is pulling us together, calling you fellow citizens with the saints, and he's saying, hey, you're in this together. You, you have a common authority. Christ is going to rule. He's going to reign. But you have a, a common enemy, the devil, the forces of darkness, and what they are producing, and that's why he ends the book in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He's like, we got to understand who our enemy is. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's like, there's, there's spiritual forces at work, and we need to understand who our enemy is. So we, if we have a common enemy and we understand that part of his game plan is to divide and conquer, wouldn't you think we'd be aware, we'd be, in a sense, hyper-aware, like, ooh, there's a chance for Satan to divide and conquer, better not let that happen. Let's make sure, you know, yes, we need to pursue truth, but we need to pursue truth in love. How, how do we do that? We, we're aware of Satan's tendency and our tendency to fall into those traps, where instead of Let's pursue Christ. Let's speak the truth in love. We instead say, ooh, let's fight for this against those people. And we fall into the trap of dividing and conquering as well. Again, I'm not saying don't stand for truth. I'm saying you need truth and love together, right? But the problem is, if we're honest, is we don't focus on how God has made us members of the same political unit, fellow citizens with the saints, that we're in this together, we have a common enemy, we're focused too much on what we want, what we think is best for us, 
the status games that we like to play. Notice another, he, he talks about those status games and how they don't matter anymore by calling us members of the household of God. You know, in a Roman household, they would have had slaves that weren't members of the household and then members of the household. So when, when you talked about being a member of the household, you knew that that had status. It meant that you could, you know, you could talk to your parents without without worrying about things. It meant that you, had, you could do certain things that the slaves couldn't do, right? You had a certain status that you have. And what he's saying, it's revolutionary in the Roman Empire, in a sense, is you're all slave or free. You're all one in Christ. You have the same status together, right? But the status games that you are used to playing, like who's the richest and who's the wealthiest and who has the most stuff and who can show off their, their greatness, that those games no longer matter because you're members of the same household. We're no longer playing this pyramid game as to who can get to the top, who can prove they're the greatest who can pull others down in order to get up higher. We're called to love one another, to, to, to just like a family, to care for one another, to view one another as in, in integral parts of the whole, that, that we are here to protect one another and to love one another. And in a sense, to the, the Bible takes another step here, in a sense, rather than saying we're just the same status, he calls us, in some ways, to rank ourselves under, to submit to one another, right? That's why when he gets to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Again, the Spirit is, is producing things in you. He's putting things in you that produce righteousness. And what are, what are some of those things? He says, you know, singing, making melody to the Lord. And then how does he end it? He says, submitting to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. He says, rank yourself under one another. To willingly submit to one another. Now, when we think of submissions, a lot of times we think of it's a punishment. Like, okay, if my brother wins, it's because my parents let him win or forced him to win because I was doing something bad, right? Like, okay, you know, Andy's you know, he gets to win this time because you messed up. You cheated, so he gets to win. You're like, oh, man, I have to submit. That's, uh, no, that's a punishment. But this kind of submission isn't a submission based on punishment. It's a submission based on love. It's a delight. Hey, we're part of the same household. We're part of the same family. Let's, let's seek to, to, to do what's good for one another because I delight in having you a part of this. Ephesians 5 helps us see that illustration in, in practice. So he just said, right, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's like, hey, you're part of the same household, but you have this status. And, and husbands, you get to lead your wives. You're, you're, you have the status of, of being the head of the home, but that doesn't mean that then you're like, well, then I'm in charge. Uh, I have this status. I'm above you. No, that's not what I'm saying. He's saying, now that you have this status as husband of the home, give your life to your wife. 
Give up your, yourself for your wife. Submit to her needs. Make sure her needs are met. That's, that's what he's saying here. You have this role to play. We get to submit to show off how Christ is in us and how Christ can use us. Let me just illustrate another illustration. Paul in, in Philippi, he, he had the status of a Roman citizen, right? And the story goes, right, it's told in Acts of, of how this young girl's following behind, saying these men are servants of the Most High God, and just distracting Paul's ability to get ministry done. So eventually he rebukes her and casts this demon out of her that was giving her this information, and, and she stops prophesying, she stops telling the future, and her owners are really upset because they were using her to get money, and so they drag him in front of the, the magistrate, and, and they get thrown in prison, beaten and thrown in prison because they were trying to spread the gospel, and, and Paul doesn't, doesn't complain, he doesn't fight it, he doesn't, but then while they're praying and singing in, in the jail, what happens? There's an earthquake, and it frees the prisoners, and the, but they stay in there, and the jailer comes, and, and then he takes Paul, and, uh, and uh, the, then the, 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 mag, the magistrates, the, the people in charge, they want to come in and be like, okay, put him back in prison, and, and, uh, or just let him go. Just, and he's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen, and you've not followed the law, and I want my status again. Why? Why does he insist on his status one time as a Roman citizen and not another? Because in both situations, he was thinking about the gospel of Christ. How do I advance the gospel? And in one situation, submitting to persecution actually advanced the gospel. And in another situation, insisting on his rights as a Roman citizen, that advanced the gospel. In, in one, one day... Why? Because he wasn't interested in a status game. He wasn't playing a status game. He wasn't all interested in, oh, no, I want to make sure I look good and that people notice who I am and what I'm about. He's like, Christ has transformed me. I'm this new creation in Christ, and I get to live in, in light and in love of Christ. And so we are members of the same household. If you, if you focus on the fact that you're members of the same household with other believers in Christ, it produces peace. It overflows in peace when you're like, well, I don't like my brother right now. I wish I, wish I didn't even know my brother right now. I wish my parents hadn't had him, you know what I mean? I get to say that because I'm the oldest, right, so... I wish my parents had, didn't have him. Right? Well, that's not going to produce peace. But if you say to yourself, well, yes, I'm at odds with my brother right now, but we're brothers in Christ. God has put us both in the same family, and he's put us both in the same family for a purpose, for a reason. Then all of a sudden, peace flows out of that. I'm able to act differently. I'm able to think differently. I'm able to, to, to operate differently. Why? Because I'm not playing a status game. I'm not like, well, I'm the oldest kid, so I get my, my way. <laughs> I'm like, we're all, we're all in the same household. We're all in this together. And so I, 
I didn't have to, I'm, I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to have time to hit point three. So I'm just going to kind of wrap it up here in a sense. And we'll get to the rest later. Um, but what, what I want you to notice with this in that sense is this is what God is doing. God is removing the hostility between, between groups of people, between us and other people, by putting us both at the feet of the cross. And he's, he's helping us then he's putting things in place, calling us. We're, we're fellow citizens with the saints. We're members of the household of God. And we're, he's putting those things into our lives and saying, this is who you are in order that we can become a home that he enjoys to live among. So it's something it's, that says here in Ephesians chapter 2, this being built together, that it's being joined together. It's in the process of happening. It's not complete yet. It's not like I don't get at odds with my fellow believers in Christ at times. It's not like we don't have disagreements at times where we might sin against each other sometimes. That still happens. But the point is, is that what am I focusing on? Am I focusing on what God is doing? Or am I focusing on what he, what I want, what I think is best for me, what, what, what will advance my status you see the difference? And what it should tell you is if this is what God is doing, then he's doing that. If you're a believer, he's doing it in your life. And he's not setting you up to fail. He's setting you up to succeed. He is interested in putting situations into your life where you run into people that are different from you. Different background, different nationality, different culture. And, and he's, he's doing that for the purpose of you saying, man, this is awesome. This is great. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know someone who's different from me, that, that God loves them as much as me. And I get to understand God's love for them just like he underst- understands his love for me. And I get to show God's love to them just as they get to show God's love to me. He's, he's putting you in different, different personalities, different families, different situations. This is part of what it means to be the church, is you're going to run into people that are different from you, and you get to show the love of God. You get to practice the love of God. You get to pursue the love of God together. But in order to do that, you have to know who you are. Because, let's be honest, it's a little scary sometimes, right? You, you get out in the world, your, your kids are in a certain school district, you're, you're doing certain things, and, and then there's a conflict in the community. And you're like, ooh, I don't, this is not, I want to get out of this community. When actually God has put you in that community, as Jesus said in the, blessed are the peacemakers, Right? Like, it's not that you, okay, well, I've got to make peace. No, it's not that you have to make peace. It's just that you have to be peace. You have to view people differently. You have to view the situation differently. You have to decide, you know, I'm members of the same household with, with the people that are believers in this community. I need to, I, I need to play the, same, the right kind of game in this, in this scenario. I need to remember who the enemy is, even if the other members of my community don't. Why? 
You say, because you can either focus on the fact that sin is destroying the world, or you can focus on the fact that God is doing something in the world. God is creating his people. He's creating a place for them where, that kills the hostility and produces peace. And that is what the church is called to be. That is what we are, whether we realize it or not. And I didn't get to point number three about really how it plays out, okay? How we are really a truly a home for God. So you got to come back next week. Sorry, it's a teaser. But, but the amazing thing is this is who you are. We'll say, well, I'm an American. Well, you might be an American, but you're also, if you're a believer, you're a citizen with the saints of God's kingdom. You'll say, well, I'm a Hatfield. Well, you, you might be a Hatfield, but you're also a brother and sister of believers in the family of God. Which one's more important? Which one lasts longer? Which one did God make? And so we live and we operate in this new space. And it's awkward at times. We forget. We forget the rules of what God's doing here, and we start making up our own rules, and we try to do things. But this is what God is doing. He's wiping out the hostility. He's planting us and making us vehicles and messengers of peace. So will you focus on that? Will you view the situations coming up in this week as God working this out in various ways? Or will you be threatened by, man, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what, what good can come of this. No, God is at work in Ames, Iowa in 2021. He's calling out a people to his name. He's creating this space that kills the hostility between people. And he's putting us into this and saying, you're, you're members of the household, my household. You're, you're fellow citizens with the saints. You, we're going to do this together, and I'm going to make this home where I'm going to dwell with you, and, and we're going to live together. We're going to enjoy one another. We're going to enjoy the peace that I have made. So will you live there? Again, this is not something you have to make happen. This is something God did. We just have to trust in it. We have to walk in it. We have to remember it. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause us to remember who we are. We get caught up in the divisions around us the arguments that plague us, sometimes the fears that make us fight and argue, quarrel and complain, and we forget that you have killed the hostility. You have made this space where we are members of the household of God and we are fellow citizens with the saints. That our common enemy is Satan who is always trying to divide and conquer us. And yet you have made us one in Christ. And you have called us to remember what you have done. 
I pray that you would build us into a, a holy temple in the Lord, that we would become that dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And I can pray that because I am confident that that is what you're going to do because you've told us that is what you are working to accomplish. Help us to live in that light. Help us to remember the joys of being part of the family of God together. In your son's name we pray. Amen.